0: All right, Revelation chapter 15, Revelation chapter 15. Remember, the whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the King is coming, and we are at the point in the book of Revelation where that is very close. At this point in the Great Tribulation, everyone's choice has been made, and the Lord has separated all of remaining humanity into two groups, those who will be saved and those who will now experience God's wrath. And when we come to chapter 15, John sees God's wrath, which has been stored up for all these years against those who have rebelled against him. He sees that wrath that's been stored up begin to take form. And and when believers throughout the ages see God's wrath uh, taking form and then poured out over these next couple chapters, the consistent response uh, from uh, the people of God is that he is just and that He is worthy. So, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Chapter 15 is divided into three sections, verse 1, then second, section 2 is verses 2 through 4, and then the final section is verses 5 through 8. And in this first section here, John sees a new symbol, he says, "I saw another sign. He had seen the earlier sign in chapter twelve. There appeared a great wonder in heaven: the woman clothed with the sun, moon, and the stars." Verse three of chapter twelve: "There appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon those uh, upon his heads." Here he sees another symbol, an event which has special meaning—a a, 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 a sign. Um, so, in other words, as we're going to see here yet, you know, he says, it's great and marvelous, seven angels having the last seven plagues. He doesn't actually see seven literal angels in front of him. He sees some symbol that depicts them here. We'll see them later. Right now, we find out they're in the throne room of God. But he sees a symbol that depicts them having the last seven plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, it mentions that this symbol that he sees is great and marvelous. So, it is great, very important, just like the symbol of the woman was very important, but this one has a a new description. It says it is also a marvelous symbol. The word marvelous here means something that transcends human comprehension or possibility. It, it, It describes an emotion that goes from shock to admiration and then ends with awe. It's the word that was used to describe the disciples' experience when they saw Jesus still the storm in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. It says that they marveled, saying, what kind of man is this that can even calm the wind and the waves? You see, when they they first saw the storm, you know, they, they thought, we're done for, and then Jesus just speaks, be still, and the storm's gone, you know? I mean, I can do that all I want. I can go outside, I can shout at the thunder, but nothing's happening, it's beyond human possibility. It's beyond human comprehension. And it jolts them. They, 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 they see it, and it's a shock. It's like, that, that's not possible, you know? And then, as you realize, well, no, it's just happened, so it is possible, then it fills them with admiration and ends with awe, where they marvel and say, what kind of man is this that he can calm the wind and the waves? That's the word that's used here. It's the same word that was used when the disciples saw the fig tree that Jesus cursed and it, it had indeed withered, you know? I've got, I've got quite a few bushes in my yard I'd like to curse. But it's not. that's not fixing anything. I need to get out tools if I want to do something to them, you know? Jesus, though, when he found no fruit in the fig tree, he cursed it because it had no fruit. And, and you you know, I don't know what the disciples were thinking, you know, maybe like, oh, that's cute, Jesus cursed the tree. And then they came back like, it's dead, you know. And and so they're they're shocked. They don't know what to think. That's not possible. You can't curse trees and they just die. But it did. And then they were moved to admiration and then awe. what What kind of person does that? That's the way that John feels here, the experience he has when he sees this symbol of the seven angels holding the the seven plagues, seven last plagues, it says. Why does this symbol elicit a similar reaction from John that he had in those other two experiences? Well, the only other time that the words seven and plagues are used together in Scripture is in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 26. So let's look at Leviticus 26. Now, Leviticus 26 is an interesting chapter. It's the second to last chapter of the book of Leviticus, and it pretty much sums up the law. In the first 13 verses, it's basically do this and you'll live. And then the rest of the chapter is if you don't, you're going to die. Do this and be blessed, don't, and you'll be cursed. And so when we get down to the, the negative side of that, if they don't obey the Lord and the judgment he'll bring, there's some interesting language used here. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> Leviticus twenty six fourteen. "'But if you will not hearken unto me "'and will not do all these commandments, "'and if you shall despise my statutes "'or if your soul abhor my judgments "'so that you will not do all my commandments "'but that you break my covenant, "'I also will do this unto you. "'I will even appoint over you terror, consumption.'" the burning og that shall consume the eyes. That doesn't sound good. Cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Now, if you look at that, that's seven specific judgments that God's going to bring against them if they disobey Him. Now, if you keep reading in verse 18, verse 21, verse 24, and verse 28, God says that if they don't repent after He brings those seven judgments, His judgment will be seven times worse. And then it doesn't list seven specific things, it just keeps saying it will be seven times worse. And in verse 21 is the place where we see these two words, seven and plagues, used together, the only other time in Scripture. Verse 21, and if you walk contrary unto me and will not listen to me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Now, John's a Jew. This is his history. He knows that his people experienced these types of judgments because they didn't obey the Lord, right? He knows this Scripture. This is not foreign to him so, the repeated use of seven in regards to judgment in the book of Revelation was something very familiar to John. He knows the pattern. So, when it says that these angels hold the seven last plagues, John may not be seeing what those specific seven judgments are yet, but he doesn't need to know. He already knows we're at the end of Leviticus 26. This is it. This is it. He knows. He is seeing a symbol for the finality of God's wrath, the final phase of God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. And when John visibly sees it, it transcends his comprehension. It jolts him at first, but then it moves him to admiration for God and then awe. Why? Well, it says in Revelation 15, one at the end, for in them, these seven last plagues, is filled up, the wrath of God. Filled up means brought to an end or made complete. Here will be completed the wrath of God. When John sees God's remaining wrath for sin, it jolts him. He thinks to himself, how has God held this back so long? How has anyone been allowed to live with all this anger just sitting here? You know, I've been talking the last few Sunday mornings about how incomprehensible God's wrath is for us. Well, just imagine you're in John's shoes and you get a glimpse at the anger that God has towards every evil thing, every wrong thing that's ever been done. Things done in secret that no one else saw. Things done in a part of the world that affected millions but billions of others didn't even know about. All of it is right there in the knowledge of God. You know, it's easy to critique the wrath of God when we haven't had to carry around the full knowledge of mankind's sin. I don't even do well with my own sin because I minimize it. You know, I minimize my own sin because I have what? I have reasons, right? Or justifications. Or even when I come to a place where I know what I've done is wrong and I even admit it, I I, I kind of put a little tag on it, though, that kind of says, Well, at least I understand why I did it. And maybe even sometimes it's just not even near as ugly as it is to me because I think to myself, well, lots of people have done the same thing or would have done the same thing I did. But God sees all of sin unbiased. He doesn't see it with any of those excuses or reasonings or, you know, lowering, lowering the bar. Frequently when I'm I'm sharing the gospel with somebody and we'll be talking about sin and and they'll finally come out, okay, so I, I see I'm a sinner, you know, but everybody sins. And that's kind of the phrase you hear very frequently, but everybody sins. Like it's just some casual phrase, like everybody breathes, you know. There's a big difference between everybody sins and everybody breathes. We don't paint it as ugly as it is. And so because God sees all of sin unbiased, it breaks his heart for what it does to both the sinner and to those wronged by those sins. But it also makes him angry because none of those things should be happening. So John is first jolted by this awareness an awareness that's beyond normal human comprehension, something he would never be able to arrive at on his own, but because God has brought it in front of him, he finally sees it. He is jolted by this awareness of God's anger plain in front of him as the day. In the same way as when Jesus stilled the storm and Jesus cursed the fig tree. But then as, as his jolting thought of that much anger in front of him, as he begins to realize the patience and the mercy and the love of God and repeatedly reaching out to a world that hates him, John is filled with admiration because he knows if that anger was inside him, he would have no love for anyone. And then when he realizes that this wrath is going to be poured out in finality upon those rebels, it fills him with awe, because God is not to be messed with. Our wonderful Lord is love, but He is also holy. You know, in our Scripture reading in Romans chapter 2, you know, He He's got this context that Paul's, you know, building, you know, he he starts in chapter one where he talks about all the, you know, the the Gentile world and how they sin and they just do all these awful things and, you know, and so religious people are thinking to themselves, oh, I'm good, you know, and in chapter two he comes and he says, no, you're not. (laughs) Because you do the same things, you just think that your religiosity makes it okay. And he goes, that's a problem for who you that you judge someone else and you do the same things thinking that somehow you'll escape because you're religious. And he makes that statement, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's not according to how religious you are. And so in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he asks a question. You know, he says, he says, do you think you're going to escape in verse 3? But then he asks another question, or is, it, is the reason that you haven't changed, the reason that you condemn others but you do the same things, is the reason that you despise the riches of the goodness, of, of his goodness and his forbearance and his long-suffering, not realizing that it's his goodness that leads you to repentance? Is that it? That you, you, you don't understand, that you, you, you despise, you think that that's something to not, to not value as important, that God's giving you an opportunity to Repent. He says, no, in doing that, by despising the opportunity to repent, after your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul was thinking about the day that John is now seeing. And he's saying, when you ignore God and his mercy and love and grace, where he forbears, where he holds back that wrath because he loves you and doesn't want to judge you. And he says, and you, when you despise that over and over and over again, there finally comes a point where all of that despising is just treasuring up more, storing up more wrath for when that day hits. And so, the Lord is not to be messed with. John is filled with awe. Now, this is a very important short symbolic sequence in verse 1. That's it. We're going to see in verse 2 that John's eyes are now drawn back to reality after he sees this symbol. The symbol will become reality at the end of the chapter. But here, the second section, verse 2, it says, "...and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name..." "'Standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. "'And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, "'and the song of the Lamb, saying, "'Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. "'Just and true are your ways, thou King of saints. "'Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? "'For you only are holy. "'For all nations shall come and worship before you. "'For your judgments are made manifest.'" Here we see the crystal sea once again, this translucent body of water. We first saw it in Revelation chapter 4 verse 6. Whether it's actual water or crystal, we can't know for sure. But we talked about in Revelation 4 how it's a picture of how God's Word is a mirror that we look into to show us the truth. And this time that mirror has a new element to it. It is mingled, it's mixed with fire. Fire, of course, speaking of destruction and justice and judgment. God's Word, which is meant to lead a person to life, is also the thing which will condemn a person if they reject it. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth. God doesn't just capriciously just say, well, today, you know, everybody that that drives a Corolla is going down, you know? No, the Lord has a standard. He's made His standard clear. It's a set standard, you know? I have a Corolla. That's why I picked me. If you have one too, sorry. He has a clear standard according to His Word of how He's going to judge. And it's meant to lead us to life, but it will be the thing that condemns a person if they reject it. And so that's why we see the fire here. Now, the first time we saw this sea of glass, it was unoccupied. This time, it says that the tribulation martyrs, those who had gotten the victory over the Antichrist and all his nonsense... It says they are standing on top of it, which leads me to believe it's solid crystal rather than actual water, although Jesus could cause them to walk on the water. We don't know, but uh, I lean the other way. I love that it says here that they had gotten the victory over the beast. You know, gotten the victory means these are those who have conquered the Antichrist. They've conquered his idol. They've conquered his mark. They've conquered his name. Everything about him. For it says they conquered not over, but literally it means from out of. They were the ones who conquered from out of the beast. They have been brought out of this. They have been faithful to the end. John had said in, earlier in chapter 14, blessed are those that die from henceforth, right? Well, now they have. We see that blessing here because they did not give in, even though it cost them everything. But now they are triumphant in heaven rescued from out of all the horrible things the Antichrist is doing on the earth. And those things will never hold sway over their lives again. Now, having arrived victorious in heaven, it says they have the harps of God. I don't know if that's, you know, looks like a Martin, you know, or a Fender. I don't know if the, this is the harp and it just says God, you know. But I can tell you that's the harp you want in your collection. So, they have the harps that are made by God, and with them, it says they sing. They sing. They sing a song that is similar to two other songs. The word here, in fact, everything in this these verses are, is singular. So it's just one song. But the song is similar to two other songs. The first one is the song of Moses, the servant of God. Um, Moses wrote a song that we find in Exodus chapter 15. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the I'm not the only one who knows it. Horse and rider thrown into the sea. I guess I'm that old. Okay. It's an old chorus. And the whole chapter a song, and it, you know, we have shortened it here in the States. Um, it's, again, an older one. But in chapter 14, verse 31, right before we get to the song, it's, it calls Moses the servant of God. So this is the song that's in mind here of Moses the servant of God. It's a song of deliverance, how God rescued Israel and destroyed Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea. The same Red Sea was their mode of rescue, was the the judgment that God brought upon uh, Pharaoh and his army. So, uh, this song that we're going to see that they sing has elements, you know, of both the fact that God has. Delivered them, he's rescued them, caused them to reach their destination, the other side in heaven, but he has also destroyed, he's going to destroy the Antichrist. So it's similar to Moses' song in that way. But it's also similar, it says, to the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is in Revelation chapter 5, uh, verses 9 and 10, and they sung a new song saying, referring to the Lamb, "'Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth.'" That's the song the church sings. So we have a a song that Israel sings and a song that the church sings. The tribulation saints, their song is similar to a combination of those two songs because they're not just Jewish believers. They're Gentile believers as well, and so they're a whole different, unique group. And that song, of course, declares Jesus' worthiness for all that He's done for us. And you know, these tribulation believers have experienced both deliverance, reached their destination, and they have known Jesus' worth. For the Antichrist hunted them down, just like Pharaoh hunted Israel down, but Jesus saved them and blessed them by His grace and brought them to heaven. Now, these dual ideas of God's justice and God's worth are clear once we see the lyrics of the song, for it says, they sing, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, thou King of saints. So, the beginning of this song declares God's justness, His righteousness. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Great means massive. Massive. Marvelous is that same word, beyond human possibility, beyond human comprehension. Are your works, Lord God Almighty. They are in awe of how gracious God has been to them, of how wonderful things are now, of how powerful God is, and how worthy He is to be praised. You know, when when we sing with God's people, you know, here at church, in the congregation, those are the types of things we should be thinking about you know, God's attributes, what He's like, God's worth and why He's worthy, and then our proper response to His love and to His power. You know, this is something when we sing, we don't just sing because we like to sing. I, I mean, if you like to sing, that's great, but we don't sing just because we like to sing in the same way that we don't not sing because we don't like to sing. We sing because we're supposed to be engaged. We're supposed to be thinking about what we're singing we're supposed to be thinking about God's attributes as we sing about them and, and how they've, we've seen them in our own lives. We're supposed to be saying thank you and expressing gratitude or, or expressing hope to Him as we are going to trust in those attributes to carry us forward in the future. We sing of His worth and we respond to His love and to His power. Is that your mindset when you sing at church? You know, if you're just standing there and you're just singing the words and you're not engaged, that's not worship. Worship is is thinking about what you're singing. Is singing important, an important part of your worship to God? It should be. I remember I got in trouble one Sunday because I told someone, I told, I taught, I said, God commands us to sing. Somebody came up to me and said, You're going to tell me I have to sing? Yes. You're going to make me sing? Well, I can't make you sing. I said, But you should. You should. Because it's not about you, it's not for you. It's for Him. It's all about Him. So it doesn't matter whether I like to sing or whether I feel in a singing mood. I'm to sing because He's worthy. Because he has attributes that I'm singing about that should be praised. Because there's a proper response to who he is that I should be engaging in. And singing is one of the ways that we do that. You know, we don't we don't have a worship time in the beginning of the service to so the people who come late aren't embarrassed. It's not why we have worship. And there's another idea out there that I commonly hear about why we do worship that's not accurate. I mean, there may be a part of it that's true, but it's not why we sing. Well, we sing so we can get our hearts prepared for the message. That's not why we sing. We sing because He's worthy. We sing because He's deserving. There's going to be singing in heaven, all right? Like, like, we're going to be declaring His worth. We're going to be talking about His attributes. We're going to be making proper responses. Like in Revelation, it's about throwing our crowns down. It's a proper response as we learn more about His grace and His goodness throughout all eternity. It should be no different here. I don't have a crown yet, but I've got a life I can surrender, Right? You know, I, I, maybe I've got an area of my life that I'm struggling with, you know, an area that, of temptation that I'm struggling with that I can yield to him, that I can give to him. Maybe there's an area of disobedience that I, I, I confess my sin and I make it right with him. Maybe there's a step of faith God wants me to take and, and I'm gonna take it now. These are all the things, that, different types of things that should be going through our mind as we sing. Worship. The very nature of the word means to kiss toward I mean, I'm sure, you know, back then, you know, if someone had the ring on, you could kiss and kiss, take their hand and kiss the ring. You could just do it to do it. I don't imagine it mean very much, though, to the person you're kissing their, their ring, though, if you just did it to did it. Do it. Did, I don't know. You get it. It's going to bother me now. <laughs> What's the proper conjugate, conjugation of that? Um, anyway. It's no different for the Lord. I know there are moments when you're hurting so bad that you're just singing because you're doing it in obedience to God. That that is worship. But if you're not engaged at all here, I don't think that's worship. So here they are declaring, you know, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. And then they say, Just and true are your ways, thou King of saints. Just means in his ways or his conduct, his behavior. So your behavior is just, it means it's right, it's the right thing to do, it's proper. True, it means it's genuine, it's real. You know, if they're saying, Lord, what you're about to do to these rebels and judging them, it's, it's, it's the proper course of action, it's the right course of action. It's, it's not something you're doing out of an emotional fit, you know. It's not something like, like we tend to get anger about things that aren't even real sometimes, you know. We get all angry about something. It hasn't happened yet, you know, but we're all out of sorts about it because we think it's going to happen. That's not the Lord's anger. It's all genuine. It's all based in reality. Over real wrongdoing. Worship is obviously thinking about God's attributes, His worth, it's our proper response to His love and His power, but worship is also about declaring the rightness of God's actions. Sometimes when I'm saying that God is good, you know, I'm saying it because everything in me is saying he's not. <laughs> everything in life around me is telling me he's not. And when I'm making a declaration, that moment is, no, you are good. I choose to believe what you say and not what these things are telling me and these things are telling me and this thing's telling me. That's why it's called a sacrifice of Praise. Just and true are your ways, thou king of saints. Worship is declaring how he is a good king and does all things well. In fact, as the suffering saints are here now in glory, they are baffled as to why anyone would worship the Lord. Verse 4, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Fear here refers to a profound reverence, respect that's bordering on awe and even fear. You know, we sing that song, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. That's true. But he should make us tremble too. He's the Lord God Almighty. He's our King, the King of all saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? The word glorify, it means to speak of something as unusually fine. Something that's deserving of honor. You know, when you and I talk about the Lord, do our words convey that there's no one else quite as awesome as him? Or is he just one of the many wonderful things that we talk about in life? They say here, for you only are holy. You know, we may experience many wonderful things in life, but the Lord is in a class of his own, isn't he? He's in a class of his own. So, the idea of glorifying him is putting him in that class of his own, you know? I, I went to Bible college, and in Bible college, it's, it's, a, it's a big Christian bubble, you know? Like, you know, anything that's out of sorts in there, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, uh, you ever seen uh, Monsters, Inc.? 2319, everybody jumps on the guy, you know? That's Bible college, Okay. You know, somebody just you know even smells like a bad attitude. It's like ah, twenty three nineteen, get him. You know, and 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 you get this idea at times you know where it's like you know twenty four seven. If it's not Jesus, you're going to hell, or you're in sin, or something like that. You know, and, and 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 you know, and of course, then you you know you leave the Bible College campus, go to McDonald's, and you hear somebody curse, and you leave the faith. You know, God, <laughs> there's a world out there that doesn't love Jesus. Sometimes, I don't want to minimize, but sometimes when you read these articles of worship leaders and other pastors or big-name people leaving the faith, and you're like, have you never been to a McDonald's? Well, I don't understand suffering. I don't understand death. You think you're the only person who's ever wrestled with that? You think you're, you're the one who's finally figured out that, that oh, well, God can't be, can't be real, can't be good, can't be just. You think no other saints throughout history have ever wrestled with that and come to a different conclusion than you? There are other wonderful things in life besides the Lord. Not, nothing wrong with enjoying those. In Proverbs chapter 30, we have this interesting proverb by a man named Agur, Agur, something like that. Agur, the son of Jacob. And, and his, his proverb is interesting because he's got a bunch of lists. He'll say, these three things are this, but this fourth one as well, and you know, whatever. He's got different topics. He addresses it here, and he, he talks about some things in verses 18 and 19 that are, are wonderful in life, He says in in Proverbs 30, verse 18, There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, the way of a man uh, with a maid. Uh, Am I the only person who like reads this, you know, when I read it like in a pirate voice? There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air. Arg! I'm pirate augur <laughs> the the proverb guy. Someone should do a VBS with that. But, <laughs> but you know, as we read through this, these, these things that are wonderful—three things, four—you know—it's poetry, of course, and and um, we read about that: the way of an eagle in the air, you know, the way of a serpent, nature, you know, um, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, you know, just. The enjoyment of life and the way of a man with a maid, love, you know, in particular romance here. Wonderful things. But the writer, this agar guy, he starts the proverb off by saying how all these ideas, all this wisdom he's sharing with us, that it's brutish compared with understanding how awesome God is. Look at Proverbs 30 verse 2. He says, surely I'm more brutish than any man, means stupid. (laughs) I'm dumber than any man. I don't have the understanding of a man. I don't know anything. I neither learn wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. In other words, he's not saying I don't know anything. I don't know anything compared to the Lord. In verse 4, he says, Who has ascended up unto heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you can tell? He says, all the things I'm going to share with you right now, it's what I've learned, but it's nothing compared to the Lord. And so when he says there are wonderful things out there, it's not that there aren't. There are, but God's on a different level. He's in a class of his own. So, is nature wonderful? Yes. Is love wonderful? Yes. But the Lord is on a completely different scale. And as such, every other thought I have must step back for his preeminence. It's not that I can't have other thoughts, but it needs to step back for his preeminence. He needs to be glorified in my life. For you alone are holy. And then he says, or the the tribulation martyrs sing, for all nations shall come and worship before you for your judgments are made manifest. When God's judgment is manifest, fully revealed, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The rebels will be forced to do so and the surviving believers in the tribulation will lovingly do so, but everyone will bow. Every knee will bow in that day. Now, in verse 5, the final section of this chapter, John's attention is arrested elsewhere. And after that, I looked and behold, something new catches his attention. The temple, the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts, the cherubim, gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So here we see God prepares to pour out His wrath. He sends out these seven angels that John saw a symbol of earlier to enact His final judgment it says, he looked, and behold, the temple, of the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven. That's a long phrase. It just means the holy of holies in heaven, God's throne room. God's throne room in heaven was opened, and the seven angels, the ones that, the, that he saw the symbol of, now become reality. They come out of the God's throne room, and they carry the seven plagues, just like John saw in the symbol. And they are clothed in pure and white linen, and they have their breasts, it actually means their torso, their whole torso, girded with golden girdles, belts, or sashes. Um, I'm not sure why John feels it's important to point out their clothing. Uh, All I can say is that angels are commonly clothed like this, so maybe he just wants us to know how he knew they were angels. I like what David Goodzik said. He said, their clothing is a reminder that God's judgment is always completely pure and righteous. They are not like the modern anti-hero or vigilante who sinks down to the level of the criminals they fight." Well, as they come out and they're carrying these seven plagues, the cherubim, one of them, gives them Um, bowls filled with God's wrath to mix with these plagues. So they have the plagues and now they're mixed with God's wrath. One of the four living creatures gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials. I think of a vial normally as like a skinny thing. This is a shallow, broad bowl normally used uh, for cooking, kind of like a cooking pot. Um, And the last time we saw these golden bowls was in Revelation 5, 8. They were filled with the prayers of the saints. And we know, of course, the prayer that is In reference there was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, right? And here we see that God is answering it. A kingdom that will come on the wings of judgment, of wrath. For it says that these bowls are filled to the full, it says full, which means filled to the brim with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The one living into the always of the forever, the eternal God, the living God. And so, even in this, we see that the focus is 100% on the Lord in this chapter. He is all-powerful. He is all-righteous, and He is the eternal living and real God. Verse 8, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. So, after the angels go out, it says that the God's throne room is filled to the brim with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. The Lord's presence is frequently accompanied by smoke in Scripture. When God's presence ascended on Mount Sinai, it said smoke covered the top of Mount Sinai. And then afterwards, uh, when they left, it says the top of the mountain was charred. Um, it is mostly in Scripture associated with anger, anger. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 4, Isaiah had a vision of God's throne room, and he saw smoke filling the temple in heaven, and Isaiah's reaction is pretty profound. He says, woe is me, I am undone. He says that when he sees the smoke, right? I'm in trouble. <laughs> smoke is not good. I, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips and amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king of glory. He thought he was done for when he saw the smoke. So this is an understanding in Scripture that, that it's, it's not a good thing. Uh, this is usually something that refers to God's, God's anger, God's judgment, God's, uh, you know, God's wrath. But it mentions it was also filled with smoke from his power. So it's not just God's presence, and it's not just that anger is happening here, but it, it's a manifestation of God's power. That's interesting because... You know, prior to this point, while the Lord has shown much power, he has still held back. And so now that the Antichrist and the false prophet have challenged the Lord, that they have rallied mankind to persist in their rebellion against the Lord despite all of God's warnings, despite the angels flying around saying, you know, Jesus has died for your sins. Don't, you, know, you don't have to you know, die in judgment. You can be forgiven. You can be saved. And another angel going out saying, Don't trust in Babylon. It's already fallen as far as I'm concerned. And then the final angel saying, Don't take the mark of the beast because if you do, you forfeit salvation. The Antichrist and the false partner come out and they're saying, Don't listen to those angels. Don't listen to the Lord. The false prophets preaching and teaching saying, Our man, our Antichrist, this, not he's going to call him the Antichrist, our guy, he survived death. He came back from death. He can take on the Lord. And then he's going to say, and I can call fire down from heaven. I can take on the Lord. And they're going to rally mankind to their side to say, we can take him." And this is the point where the Lord says, no more holding back. No more holding back. You know, the worst judgment sometimes that God can give us is to give us what we want. And so the Lord answers their challenge by saying, all right, let's step into the ring, and it will be a a massacre. Now, one final thing occurs here at the end of verse 8 that's very important before we close. It says, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. I I read that, and it baffled me because I thought, Lord. In, In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 it says, because of everything Jesus did in verse 22, it says, let us draw near, right? Let us enter into the Holy of Holies. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it says in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. We have now this freedom, this access, this right to approach God in Christ, right? When, when Jesus died on the cross, the thing that prevented us from coming to the Lord was that veil, right, between us and the Holy of Holies, and what did Jesus do? He ripped it in half, right? It was ripped from top to bottom. It wasn't ripped by man. It was ripped by the Lord. The Lord ripped it and said, enter in, right? And that's the whole idea, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew believers, the Jewish believers in that that letter's written to were discouraged. They were under persecution. They didn't understand what God was doing. And they were thinking, well, let's, maybe Christianity is not the right way. Let's leave Jesus and let's go back to the old sacrificial system. And Paul, uh, Paul whoever wrote Hebrews, he says, When the going gets tough, we don't pull away, we come closer. We come closer. And so he urges them, tells them how Jesus is better, how the covenant we have is better. And so, in light of that, he he hits his, his point home in chapter 10. He says, Let us draw near. Let's come into the Holy of Holies because the way is open. So we're invited into this place. Why, all of a sudden, now that we're in heaven, the door's barred for three, three and a half years? It's kind of baffling. We aren't in, ones in danger of judgment. What, what, what do we have to fear to go in there? Well, there are two reasons why the, the door is shut and we are barred from that specific place. Jesus is with us. He'll always be by our side. But the Father's in there doing this alone. Why? Two reasons. In Hebrews 4.16, it tells us one of the reasons we draw near. It says, let us... Come boldly before his throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need, right? We come before him in prayer. We come before him with our needs. We come before him to bring other people's needs, right? To intercede. Well, not only are we invited to come to the Lord in prayer, but even the wicked are invited to come to the Lord and repent and call on him. And Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call you upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So in Isaiah 55 verses six and seven, not only are we invited to come to the Lord, but the wicked are invited to come to the Lord. The lost are invited to come to the Lord. So what does it mean if the door shut? It means that's at an end now. That's at an end now. God will hear no more intercession from the wicked or for the wicked. They have made their choice. The second reason the door is closed is because God does not need our input or our assistance in judgment. In James chapter 4, and you can turn there. I'm going to close with the book of James. James chapter 4, verse 12 It says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges another? God does not need our input as it regards judgment. He is the one lawgiver, and he is the one who is able to save or to destroy. Judgment is God's work, not ours. And so while the tribulation martyrs worship God for his righteous justice... While we will see these bowls in Revelation 16, and it mentions the 24 elders that they're going to cry out, "You are right to do this, God." That'll be us. While we will also say that this is right, God alone does the work. He does not need our input or our assistance, and that's a sobering reminder to us because the words of James 4:12 have a context to them, and it starts in verse 10. James 4 verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Do not speak evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. And if you, are a judge, of the, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge, and that's not our role. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy, and that's the Lord. So who are you that judges Another. Now, we hear this phrase all the time, don't judge me, bro, you know. Most of the time, it's used incorrectly. There are two words in the New Testament for judging. One refers to what the jury does. They decide innocence or guilt, right or wrong. The other one is the role of the actual judge, the one who passes sentence. And the word that it talks about, judge not, lest you be judged, refers to the judge role, the passing of sentence, We are exhorted on numerous occasions to declare right and wrong, to judge between right and wrong. But you and me are not the ones who decide whether someone is going to heaven or hell. And truth be told, you might be a little surprised who's there and who's not. One of my favorite verses is in Revelation, not Revelation, Romans chapter 14, verse 4, where it talks about who are you that judges another man's servant? You know, he stands and falls before his own master, not you. But I love the ending, and it says, It says, and he is able to make him to stand. You know, we might look at somebody and be like, man, they're, not, they're, they're lost, man. They, they don't got it, man. They're, 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 not, they're not saved. And the Lord's like going, you don't know the end of the story yet. They might look like they're a mess right now, but I can hold them up, and I will. And so it's not our job to write people off. It's not our job to decide. It's the Lord's job. Wrath is God's part, not ours. I'm going to leave you with James 1, 19, as the worship team comes up to close us out. James 1, 19 and 20, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, you who are wonderfully, amazingly, marvelously loved by God, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. All that praise or saying, God, you're just, God, you're doing the right thing. Our wrath is, doesn't produce that. It produces something that people are gonna go, that's the wrong thing. That's the wrong thing. And so our job is to be slow to speak, slow to wrath, and quick to listen. Amen? So I'll stand. Lord, wrath is your job, and we acknowledge that this morning. We acknowledge that you are just in it. We acknowledge, Lord, that someday we're going to sing, we're going to declare, Lord, that everything you do is just and right. But, Lord, we don't do that. We make a mess of things when we get angry and frustrated. Lord, we are so often like Peter, who, (laughs) ready to start the revolution, ready to deal with the evildoers, we end up chopping off the ear of a brother. Someone whose story is not over yet. So, Lord, help us to remember that you told your servant, Peter, that's your father's job. So, our job, Lord, help us to be obedient, to be slow to speak, slow to wrath, quick to listen. Lord, to... Boldly and lovingly, with kindness, declare right and wrong, but remember that wrath is your part, and that, Lord, in your patience and in your kindness, in your goodness and mercy desiring to bring us to repentance, Lord, you wait, and therefore so should we. So, Lord, give us that same compassion, Lord, for those around us who are doing evil the same love and passion, Lord, to reach out to them with the gospel. Fill us with boldness. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.